Hello, everybody. We're going to start the program. Again, thank you. Uh, thank you for coming. My name is Howard Wender. I'm with Strata Real Estate Services. And, and along with Program Chair Dan Albrook with Leopardo Construction and Co-Chair Jeanette Outlaw with OF, OFS Brands, we're very excited about today's program, Made in the USA, the resurgence of manufacturing in America. And the three speakers we're going to have today are going to dispel the myth that we don't make anything, make anything in this country anymore. So I'm going to call them up, and uh, they're going to each give you their bios when they come up here. So we'll Bruce Breaker, Director, Chicago Manufacturing Renaissance Council, Harry Moser, President, Reshoring Initiative, and Mike Johnson, Managing Director, Illinois Manufacturing Extension Center. Please come up. Hi, I'm Bruce Breaker, uh, Director of the Chicago Manufacturing Renaissance Council, and formerly with the Tooling and Manufacturing Association for 39 years. 27 of those as president, and uh, also I'm treasurer and executive committee member of a group called the National Institute for Metalworking Skills, uh, which is a skill standards organization. I'm going to talk a little bit about what our organization does, CMRC, and give you some interesting facts on global U.S. and Illinois manufacturing, and tell you what's made in the U.S. in Chicago and close with some workforce issues because you can't have manufacturing without a trained workforce. Now, manufacturing is not well perceived by much of the public or not perceived at all. And many think that the factories look like this. In fact, Howard told me he was in a factory that looked very similar to this at one time, <coughs> or this. And many think that it's all going to China anyway, that we don't make anything, we don't need to. 326 people were interviewed and asked, where do you think manufacturing ranks in the U.S.? And the average answer was 20th globally. Some competitors from Skills USA that uh, were in a CNC machining contest had us in the mid-third, the lower third. And a few years ago, I was at a meeting with 60 other manufacturers, and a Illinois state representative said to these 60 manufacturers, Manufacturing is a dinosaur. We're a service economy. We do, really don't make anything anymore. <clears throat> and one of the manufacturers gently took her aside after the meeting, explained that he's not a dinosaur. So that's it for manufacturing. <clears throat> it's extinct. Chicago Manufacturing Renaissance Council is a coalition of business and, and labor, community, government, education, unlikely partners coming together to solve issues, uh, create policy that favor manufacturing. We believe that there's no reason why the U.S. and the Chicago area can't be the leader in advanced manufacturing. And we think that advanced manufacturing is the best way to rebuild the middle class in America. Many definitions of advanced manufacturing, I'll, I'll read you one, characterized by high productivity, high profit, high wage, technology rich, high value added fabrication, assembly production of globally competitive, complex products that create wealth and build and sustain communities. And it does require a smaller workforce, but a much better trained workforce than what we had previously. This is actually how many manufacturing companies look these days. The U.S. is actually tied, virtually tied with China at the number one position in value added. Value-added is important. That's the wealth generated by the manufacturing process. 
total shipments in the U.S. are about 5.5 trillion, but some shipments from one company or another company's inputs, and the total price includes components, subassemblies, materials, that type of thing, but value added is the best measure of actual economic activity. So we're in a virtual tie with China at 1.8 trillion, and uh, behind us is Japan at 1.1, Germany at about 800 billion, and Italy at about 400 billion. And you'll see here the blue line is value added for U.S. manufacturing. And you see the red line that's sneaking up there and catching it. That's in 2009. Uh, the red and the blue line have pretty much intersected at this point. And you can see that Japan is kind of flattened. In fact, a lot of Japanese manufacturing now is, is, is in other countries, not in Japan, and much of it in this country. Same with Germany, the green line. You see that it tailed off some uh, between 08 and 09. And again, many German uh, companies are uh, being formed in the US and elsewhere uh, because it's expensive to produce in Germany. China, uh, well-educated, hardworking workforce, uh, took these pictures in 2002. And since then, they've grown considerably. A Little bit about China. Their manufacturing is growing several times faster than ours. It's about 43% of their economy versus our 12.5%. Close to 100 million uh, Chinese work in manufacturing compared to our 12 million, and their population is over four times greater than ours. Uh, they have 1.3 billion mouths to feed, so uh, no surprise that their manufacturing and total volume, total quantity, not necessarily quality, uh, is surpassing ours. It's important to look at the economic uh, development that manufacturing drives. I said we have 12 million relatively well-paid people working in manufacturing. A 2003 study, which is an update of a previous study, said that one manufacturing job supports another three. A recent study says one manufacturing job supports another five. Uh, that's Implan in Minnesota came up with that based on some Bureau of Economic Analysis input-output data. But the multiplier counts the spending and respending of wages, um, direct, indirect, induced type employment. But wh whether you pick one three, one to five, what, what's important is the relative strength of manufacturing compared to other sectors. Here's some example uh, utilities. Number one, one uh, supports 5.6. Manufacturing is second at five. And you can see it tails off to retail at one retail job supports another half a job nowhere near as powerful uh, for the economy as manufacturing is. And there's many others there, too. I just didn't put them all on the chart. If you want more information on that, just give me a call. Productivity, important measure of output per unit of input, typically labor. Manufacturing employment's down from 18 million to 12 million over the last 10 years, which is what scares a lot of people about manufacturing. <clears throat> but the fact is, uh, 6 million of those jobs were jobs that were, in many cases, automated away, engineered away, uh, because of the, the modern way of manufacturing. Some of these jobs also went overseas, and we'll be talking about that a little bit later on. The split between what caused the drop, whether it's productivity improvement or, or foreign competition, is still being debated. But we are considered to be the most productive uh, nation in the world in terms of manufacturing productivity. And, and note that. Chinese output is similar to ours, except we have 12% of the labor force, which shows that, uh, for the most part, we're doing things a little differently than they are. Globally, we're still a good company, country to invest in. 
We're number one in foreign direct investment. Foreign firms employ two million workers and, um, and sell 1.1 trillion in manufactured goods. And that's not value added, that's shipments. Remember I talked earlier 5.5 trillion in shipments versus 1.8 trillion in value added, but that's their shipments. Siemens, for example, over 60,000 American jobs, and they're saying they're having a hard time filling jobs. Even in this current economy, they're saying they have 3,200 openings because that's the mismatch of skills. The jobs they have available, people don't have the right skills to fill them. That's something we have to work on. And the U.S. does, uh, is a heavy exporter of manufactured goods, third largest after the European Union as a whole, then China, then the U.S. Locally, in the metropolitan statistical area, and you can see what counties that includes up there on the, uh, on the slide, uh, 13,400 manufacturers, over 400,000 employees with a gross regional product, which is a measure of value added, of about $52 billion. And you can see our, our largest is chemical, which would include Nalco, um, some of the pharmaceutical companies, Abbott, those types and then machinery, fabricated metal, and of course, food. Illinois manufacturing, looking at the state as a whole, about 11,800 manufacturers with 19,000 manufacturing plants, buildings, which is something you're all interested in. 580,000 workers, 12.4% of the economy. You remember the multiplier. My job and a lot of other jobs are dependent on manufacturing. And we export about 25% of what we make in this state. Uh, think Caterpillar and companies like that. Uh, made in the US, it, it's not dying. It's moving upscale. It's becoming more efficient, uh, developing new products, entering new markets, seeking greater profits. And most of what's made in the US you don't find in Walmart. There are different types of goods than that. And that's something Mike Johnson will be talking about a little bit later on. Is, uh, what, what characterizes a successful manufacturing company. But automated, capital intensive, low labor content, highly skilled workers, tight dimensional tolerances, company called Prince Industries in Carroll Stream, uh, machines product both in Carroll Stream and in Shanghai. Uh, their tighter tolerance work, their tougher work, they tend to keep in Carroll Stream, not Shanghai. Better control over it, uh, better trained people. Products in the U.S. are highly engineered, um, electromechanical devices, Illinois Tool Works, for example. That's 825 decentralized businesses worldwide, and 57 of those are in the state of Illinois. Excellent company. Um, what we make in this state is, is heavy uh, in many cases. Complex, requires R&D, uh, John Deere, $26 billion in shipments and sales. Navistar, Caterpillar, Electromotive Diesel, which is now part of Caterpillar. And uh, last year, I think it was, uh, Kat said they're investing another billion dollars in their five plants in the state of Illinois. National security, great niche to be in. Guided missiles, space vehicles. We, we don't tend to buy those from our overseas partners. We tend to make them and, and sell them uh, to others, but for the most part, made in this country. $17 billion sector in shipments. Northrop Grumman, a local company right here in Rolling Meadows, went onto their website to see what they're making. I thought, I, I kind of stopped at directional infrared countermeasures. I thought that was kind of cool. But they're doing right, uh, that right over in Rolling Meadows. And thanks to supply chain, companies like Numerical Precision and Robert C. Wysight, CNC machining companies, computer numerical control machining companies, high-end tight tolerance machining is part of those supply chains. Aerospace, 
we have their headquarters here. I wish we had a plant in the neighborhood, maybe someday. <clears throat> but still a massive industry and supply chainers to Boeing uh, are in the Chicago area. A company called Skodai and Skokie, they make laminations. They stamp out laminations, lots of them. And they're used in airplane brakes. That's one of the uses for the laminations. Well, they wear out and they have to be replaced. That's a wonderful niche. Every time that plane lands, uh, Skokie Tool is just, uh, or Skodai is a little bit closer to replacing that brake. $200 billion market in terms of shipments. Food processing. <clears throat> These are companies that we're familiar with. And this is a value added number $14 billion. $2.7 billion is the food processing equipment that they use. And some of those names, Sara Lee, uh, Quaker Oats, Dean Foods, McDonald's, they do manufacture some of the product that they sell in those McDonald's, lots of it, Keebler Foods. Biopharmaceutical, uh, Chicago is a leader in that, Abbott and Baxter, uh, $126 billion uh, in product shipments a year. We're a world leader. And if you go onto a site that I found called the LabRat, it listed uh, about 25 local biopharma companies. Packaging related, great niche. Uh, food, drugs, everything shows up in a package. Can't buy stuff unless it's packaged. And uh, it could be plastic, it could be corrugated uh, material, uh, but a lot of it is, is plastic. And some of it uh, green where it, uh, it doesn't sit there for a thousand years after you throw it away. But Pactiv in uh, Lake Forest, Hefty Brand is one of their brands. Energy related, this is huge. It's uh, oil and gas. We export 66% of what we make. We only import 24%, so that's a positive balance of trade in a $31 billion industry. Uh, green, Siemens again, out by Elgin. They have a couple of plants that make uh, um, mechanical drives for wind turbines. They're one of the leaders in that. Uh, excellent sector. Medical devices. Uh, Stryker in northern Indiana, and, and a lot of other medical device companies in northern Indiana as well. Positive balance of trade, $80 billion sector, and of course that young lady is, is holding an American-made needle in that hypodermic, I'm absolutely certain. <laughs> Transportation, uh, principal manufacturer in Melrose Park does fine blanking, which is a type of stamping for the automotive industry. Promold in Roselle makes molds that mold taillights for mainly Japanese customers. And you've got Ford, Chrysler, Mitsubishi, Tower Automotive in the state of Illinois. Now it's not the big three, it's actually 13 different manufacturers of automobiles in this country. And it really doesn't matter who owns the place, as long as it's made in America. In fact, I understand that half of what Honda assembles in this country is for export to other countries. So they have us as an export platform. And of course, uh, this isn't a commercial for a Ford Explorer, but I'm thinking of buying one. They're made on the south side of Chicago. And a highly rated car, highly rated. Workforce issues, and this is what I'm wrapping up with. That skill gap I mentioned earlier, there's 14 million unemployed, but there's 3 million unfilled jobs. Much of the, that, those jobs are in manufacturing. So even though manufacturing isn't growing in terms of total employment, there's a real gap in, in terms of skills available to do the work that needs to be done. And the fact is it's an excellent career path for those that are, are ready, willing, and able to learn the skills that are necessary and are willing to embark on a life of continuous improvement in their own knowledge and education. I'm going to tell you a little bit about a program that CMRC, the organization that I work with now, uh, has. It's uh, Austin Polytechnical Academy on the west side of the neighborhood. 
It's a small public high school. Austin High School was closed down, and then uh, we were able to reopen a new high school started in 2007. And it's an academy, it's contextual learning. In other words, learn and apply, it's like apprenticeship model that's uh, centuries old. Learn and do, learn and do, and, and then the, the learning is more effective. But they learn at the high school standard math, science, English, what needs to be learned, but in addition to that, programs like Project Lead the Way, which is pre-engineering, and we have a CNC machining class uh, there at the high school, and we make whistles, and they work. They do work. Uh-oh, I think I got a bad one. Either that or it's me. There we go. <laughs> anyway, uh, Society of Manufacturing Engineers just ordered 700 of those. We weren't planning to make them for sale. We were just making them as a project for the kids. Uh, but we are actually uh, now have five students in the class making whistles for the Society of Manufacturing Engineers. And they earn industry credentials. They earn NIMS credentials in material measurement and safety, CNC operator. And next year, we're going to try to get all the way to level one CNC programmer setup and operator. And it isn't that they're all going to be machinists, but that helps to learn math, it helps to apply, it helps to understand the world of work. And we have, uh, we have manufacturing partners, but the idea is that, uh, that, that they'll go to college, or they'll go right into the work world, uh, get into management, teach them about ownership, intellectual property. Mainly the juniors in the class have had the opportunity to earn 125 NIMS credentials. 30,000 of these credentials have been earned nationwide. And the program itself was accredited on June 27th, the only high school in the state accredited so far by NIMS. But we have 65 partner companies throughout the Chicago area that provide job shadowing, internships, summer employment, and career opportunities. But it, the key here is the contextual learning. It does work best for many, many individuals. And uh, the students are getting some real opportunities, not just the hope for the future. But there's organizations attempting to uh, close the skill gap. SME, Society of Manufacturing Engineers, is working now more with high schools than they ever did before, not just colleges. And there's 50 programs in the Chicago area, nowhere near as many as there used to be, that teach CNC machining and metals types programs. And uh, as I said earlier, we've, we've so far granted nationwide 30,000 uh, NIMS credentials. So in conclusion, American manufacturing is strong. Uh, I mean, others around, around the world want what we have, and they're fighting hard to get it. But in the meantime, uh, we are 1.8 trillion, a huge part of the economy, and that uh, domestically made durable and non-durable goods made by Americans is a good thing for all of us. And now uh, Harry Moser is going to talk to you about reshoring, uh, bringing some manufacturing back to the U.S. Thank you. You're welcome. Now? Yeah, now we got it. Okay. So uh, I'm the founder and president of the Reshoring Initiative, wh whose job is to help convince U.S. companies to bring work back. Uh, previous to that, for 25 years, I was the president of 
Agi Charmy, which is a large machine tool company in, in uh, Lincolnshire. And I'm on the board of NIMS along with Bruce. And despite being on the board with him and being a good friend of Bruce, I'm going to take a slightly different uh, position on some of the things he said. Uh, where he said, you know, I, I'll simplify. He said the glass is mostly full, and I'm going to say at most it's half full, and it's been draining rapidly. Okay? And, and that reshoring is the best way to solve that. So for, for example, uh, the US value added that Bruce uh, mentioned, I, I believe is overstated. If you compare the, uh, for example, steel output in China to the US, in the US we produce about 80 million tons a year, and China produces about 700 million tons a year, so about eight and a half times as much. So dramatic differences. So if you made piles of stuff that China made and piles of stuff that we made, their pile would be immensely larger. The productivity improvements in the US are also overstated because of inaccuracies in the calculation of the value added. The balance of trade deficit you know, last, last month was reported at 50, 50 billion for the month, which means 600 billion for the year, which means three or four million manufacturing jobs that are not here that would be if we had a, a neutral balance of trade deficit and another 10, five to 10 million of the multiplier jobs. You put that all together, we'd have 4% uh, unemployment if we had manufacturing enough, if we manufactured as much as we consumed. And the, that, that insufficiency of manufacturing is a major reason for the 9% unemployment, and maybe it would be four or three otherwise, and for the US and the very famous Illinois budget deficits, okay? So, so that, that's the glass half full and, and, and draining viewpoint. And, and so I'm going to show you what the reshoring initiative offers to do something about that. So, so I'm going to describe the, the potential renaissance of American manufacturing, uh, significantly influenced by reshoring, which is bringing manufacturing back home. The reshoring initiative is a, is a nonprofit. It has 12 and actually as of yesterday, 13 sponsors. And of those, uh, AMT, any of you know what AMT is? Okay, they're the group that puts on IMTS. How many of you know what IMTS is? The biggest, the biggest trade show that ever comes to Chicago comes to McCormick Place every even year, 80,000, 90,000 people, okay? And, and then a bunch of other companies and trade associations, many, many of them located here in Chicago. Um, a lot of, uh, reshoring is the opposite of offshoring, okay? And offshoring is significantly a, a herd behavior phenomenon. A lot of big companies offshored because they saw other companies doing it. They saw other companies shutting down factories, laying off people, and they said, if it's working for them, it'll work for us. They did it because maybe there was a bad quarter for the company in terms of margin. And so the president, the CEO, announced to Wall Street, we're going to offshore a third of our production because then our margin will improve and we can get the profits back up so the stock goes back up. So there's a lot of emotion, a lot of, shall we say, um, non-objective thinking that went into the process. And in fact, uh, Archstone Consulting, which used to be a Chicago-based consulting company, surveyed large companies and found that about 60%, so 60%, the majority, um, when they made decisions about offshoring, looked at much less than the total cost of what it really cost them to offshore. So they missed 20 or 30% of the cost. So it would be like a, like a property manager who said, who made a decision on a building but left out the 
maybe the real estate tax and the utilities and the maintenance costs of, of that decision. They were making decisions while ignoring much of the costs that they should have been considering. And a lot of those costs, such as uh, a carrying cost on the inventory, the travel cost to check, the intellectual property risks, opportunity costs, went into, went into overhead or other portions of the P&L. So here's a very important recent uh, press release that came out from Boston Consulting Group, very credible organization, came out about two months ago. And they said that manufacturing is expected to return to, to the US to expect a renaissance of American manufacturing and that they expected that the, the net labor cost in China by 2015 will be converging to the cost in the United States, especially in the Southeast, in Mississippi, Alabama, et cetera. And by net labor costs, they meant that the, uh, not that the, the wages would be as high, but that the wages, but, but the unit labor cost would be close enough because the, let's say the wages are getting closer, the productivity isn't as high as Bruce pointed out, so the, the labor cost per unit gets close enough that all these other costs that I described, the costs that most of the companies missed, would be enough to make it more, more efficient, more cost-effective to bring the work back to the United States. So the reshoring initiative's objective is to change that unobjective, rather herd-based mentality that said offshore is cheaper, to change that over to local reduces the total cost of ownership. You probably have something like total cost of ownership in a building or something like that, but we use it to describe the price plus all these other costs that logically should be accrued and charged against the source to understand what it really costs. So we train the big companies, why to source local. We train suppliers like the job shops that Bruce mentioned and unions and others how to sell local sourcing. So even we could, we could train real estate people how to sell to potential, um, say, foreign companies that wanted to locate here, how to sell the advantages of locating here to support the local market. Uh, we do our best to encourage production near the customer. So we don't do, do not say that everything should be made in the US and shipped to everywhere in the world, like we should make everything, but that most of what's going to be consumed in the US should be made here. Uh, we do our best to, on the unlevel playing field. You've probably heard about China currency manipulation and all kinds of finagling that they do. So we do the best we can despite that. Uh, what we offer is a, a software, it's called the Total Cost of Ownership Software. It's free, because we're a nonprofit, and, and uh, it's available to you, to your, your client companies, uh, your, uh, any, anybody you deal with. We have a library of 98 uh, reshoring articles. You can go online and see that. So if you're trying to convince General Motors to build a plant here, you might show them an article that said that Ford had brought that kind of product back and manufactured it here for these reasons, and therefore that would help convince General Motors. We've had excellent media coverage, uh, TV, radio, et cetera. We have an Illinois reshoring initiative I'll tell you about. We provide the motivation for the skilled workers that Bruce is seeking because the kind of student who's smart enough that we'd want him to run a million dollar machine tool making a part that with an accuracy of a micron or two is smart enough to read about offshoring in China and post-industrial society. So to the extent that that we, that industry can convince them that we're doing something to bring the work back and that there'll be a stable career makes it easier for Bruce then to recruit the kids that he needs into the program. We're a solution to today's supply chain problem. Most of you have read about the Japanese uh, earthquake and that was a disaster. There was an excellent article on it today that described 
you know, the months of impact that it had on the total supply chain. The, 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 we've had two instances of European volcanoes that shut down air, air freight throughout Europe, and therefore all the companies that were dependent on, on air freight went down. Political instability, in the, especially in the Middle East, but in other locations. The Chinese and other low labor cost country wages have been rising. In China, 17 to 20% a year for the last eight years, expected to continue at that rate. Um, currencies, China's been going up at about 5.6% per year and will eventually rise even more rapidly because they're having, their inflation rate is about 6%. And that's, and that's with people who spend most of their money on food and other necessities. And so that's very politically unstable. The best way for the Chinese to cut the cost of living expressed in yuan is to raise the value of the yuan so everything they buy gets cheaper, and therefore they, put the, they keep the inflation down. The US dollar's been declining, oil's been soaring. So all these things are putting an impact on the supply chain of all these big companies, and the best solution for those companies is to bring the work back. So we offer this uh, total cost of ownership estimator. So here's an example. If the Chinese price is 70 and the US price is 100, the supply chain manager would say, look at that and say, huh, 30% difference, $30 a piece, maybe 2,000 units a year, $60,000 price saving. That goes a long way towards my meeting my annual objective on how much I've got to save. I'm going to get my bonus. Of course, I'll do it. But then they look at the uh, total cost of ownership for China, maybe 98 versus 108 for the US. Now there's only a 10% difference. And they say, huh, this doesn't look so good anymore. And then the forecast using the differentials, or using in each case the uh, wage inflation increase and the change in the currency says that in about three years, the Chinese total cost of ownership will be higher. So essentially coming to the same conclusion that that Boston Consulting Group came to. And therefore, hopefully the supply chain manager will say, I'm not sending any more work overseas and I'm going to start planning to bring it back. An excellent example is a, a GE water heater. Uh, this is a well-known case brought back to Louisville and they uh, brought back 400 jobs, renovated the facility, uh, a new model. They had excellent design collaboration with the workers. So by having engineering near manufacturing, they were able to work together to save costs. And they found that the Chinese cost, which at the price level was 30% below the US level, by the time they added in all these other costs that I described in the total cost of ownership concept, the Chinese cost became 6% higher than the US cost. And therefore, they made the decision to bring the work back. Um, the initiative has been working with uh, Washington and government in general. I was there for two days in DC working with the Council on Competitiveness, a very high-level organization. They're, they're also working on reshoring. I did a webinar for the AFL-CIO to train their uh, program, their, their leaders around the country, how to engage management in discussions about bringing this back. Uh, the NIST MEPs, of which IMEC is an example here, I did a, a national webinar for them and then spoke at their annual conference, and they're taking the message around the country. And then Congressman Wolf in Virginia introduced a bill, HR 516, to bring jobs back to America and included in a call for total cost of ownership software, which he got from my, one of my articles. So we're influencing Washington. An interesting case here, there's you know, two well-known professors from the Harvard Business School, Pisano and Xi, and they've, they've repeatedly uh, published their results saying that as you separate engineering from manufacturing, innovation declines. And we've all, a lot of the politicians will say, or economists will say, forget manufacturing, we'll be an innovation country. But if you try to be an innovation country, which means do engineering, 
but you take manufacturing over here, then you lose that communication, that teamwork to get the job done, and it collapses. And eventually, engineering follows manufacturing, and then you've got nothing. So increasingly, uh, industry and, and university is noting you've got to keep manufacturing here. Another interesting study from a Professor Autor at MIT, also at the National Bureau of Economic Research, who pointed out that uh, the total cost to society of giving unemployment and other benefits to people who are impacted by offshoring because they've lost their job is about equal to the total savings collectively to all of our society based on the lower prices in Walmart and other places due to the savings on the lower cost things. So, so there's a, it's sort of a wash. So in the past, Ricardian comparative advantage would have said everybody wins when you have the lowest cost place make the stuff, but his conclusion is it isn't actually happening. So it means we have to do something about it. Uh, uh, the initiative is surveying supply chain managers, asking them questions like what percentage increase would you have to see in the price of what you're getting offshore to bring back a given percentage of what you've offshored, such as if the US dollar cost went up by 30%, they might bring back 30%. The intent here, as this data gets more firm, more credible, is to be able to go to President Obama and say, okay, how many jobs is it going to take to get you reelected? Uh, okay, then we have to get the Chinese to raise their currency by so much, or we have to put duty on, or we have to take taxes down, or do something to get the U.S. relatively more competitive in about this amount. So to end the continuing discussion and actually quantify that relationship and be able to proceed on, on achieving what we'd like to see. Um, I believe that, uh, that reshoring is the best way to uh, get the economy. I mean, all of you would love to see your buildings full and that, you know, more, more renters and all this kind of thing happening. And, and I believe reshoring is the best way to make the whole economy get going. You know, a lot of people would say, uh, like the Democrats would say to get the economy going, that since Howard's working and Harry's retired, that, uh, that we should tax Howard and give it to Harry. Okay? And uh, uh, the Republicans would say that, uh, we should cut Howard's taxes and hope the economy uh, is motivated and stimulated. And if it doesn't work, we'll get the money from the Chinese or maybe his kids or his grandchildren or something like that. And a lot of people would say, put tariffs on the product coming in from China, but the net result from that would be higher prices at Walmart and everybody would scream. And yet none of these things even actually happen because nobody can actually make their mind up as we've seen in the, in the budget dilemma, the deficit dilemma. And so the nice thing about reshoring is it doesn't take any government action. It just takes for companies to actually see what's in their own self-interest and actually go ahead and do it. And when they do that, the pie gets bigger. And instead of everybody fighting like they're doing right now of how to slice the pie, when the pie gets bigger, you don't have to worry so much about how to slice it because there's enough there for everybody. And it brings back manufacturing, which is what has been the biggest loser over the years. Construction, maybe the last three or four years, but manufacturing over the last 20 or 30. So we have an Illinois reshoring initiative. It has five or six steps. It started out with a conference at Harper College. We had about 85 people. We, we then trained the supply chain managers, that's the purchasing people, out at uh, the Design to Part uh, conference in Schaumburg, had about 200 people, um, surveyed the supply chain managers, asked them, what behavioral changes do you want from your suppliers from the job shops? We have the suppliers then coming together July 20th at TMA, which is in Park Ridge. And we're going to train them to do the things that the supplier, that the customers say they want. And then we bring them all together at the NTMA Contract Manufacturing Purchasing Fair at the Intercontinental Hotel to both understand total cost of ownership, hopefully 
speed date there for 10 minutes each and then go away and consummate the relationship and actually bring work back. And then uh, IMEC and others of our 40 supporting organizations will go after them and say, have you brought any work back? What do we have to do? Can, what, and, and actually document the fact that we've succeeded and actually brought work back to Illinois. And, and I believe if it doesn't work this year, it'll work next year. And, and eventually, we'll, I'm sure we'll find that we can bring back a, a permanent manufacturing job for $1,000 in comparison to the stimulus program that brought back a one-year government job for a quarter million to a half million dollars. So I, this is 100 to 1,000 times more effective, I believe. We have to prove it. Um, so, so some ideas for companies, and some of you are from companies, how to use this. You can get the total cost of ownership estimator. It's free. Uh, I have some handout sheets out by the table. You can pick them up. It has the website. Just go there, pick it up. Uh, buy and sell thinking total cost of ownership. Call on me to train your supply chain people, your sales teams, your customers. It's free. Uh, when you have cases that you've reshored, send them to me. Because part of, part, of, part of the reason people offshored is because they thought everybody was offshoring. The more media we have coverage about reshoring, the more likely the companies are to do it. Um, some interesting coverage by more or less real estate media, trade and industry development, site selection, material handling and logistics, magazines, some of you know. I've had articles in, in during this year. Uh, so what you can do, inform your manufacturing companies, yours or the ones you work with, Use the tools to convince prospects and others to come here. Um, pass on to economic development agencies. Interestingly, I, I had a telephone call yesterday with Select USA. Any of you know what Select USA is? A new arm of the Commerce Department in Washington designed to motivate more foreign direct investment. And I had a conversation with Barry Johnson, who's the head of that, and, and he said we would partner together and they would use our material projected around the country to the economic development groups to, to, use, to use to help convince foreign companies to come here into the United States, build factories, you know, buy your buildings, and so on. Uh, I have four free industry-sponsored webinars in August. You can, you can find them on our website. You or your clients, your companies you work for could, could listen in. Um, so this is, uh, last slide, this is a little bit how I envision myself, a little, little vainly. Who is that supposed to be? Who is it? Little Dutch boy. OK, little Dutch boy. OK, and uh, so you had the, the North Sea, and Holland is a couple of feet below the North Sea. There's a dike holding back the North Sea. And he stuck his finger in the dike and, uh, to, keep the, to plug the hole and keep the dike from collapsing and flooding Holland while he waited for the village elders to come out and repair the dike. And, and that's conceptually, that's offshoring. And I'm the little Dutch boy. And I'm keeping the offshoring back, and you're the village elder. So if you spread the word and you help convince companies to do this, then we're not going to get flooded, and the glass is going to come up to the level that uh, we'd all love to see it be. Thank you very much. Thanks, Harry. Good afternoon. I'm Mike Johnston. <clears throat> Excuse me. My allergies are really good today, so uh, I'll probably clear my throat a half a dozen times or more. Uh, I'm the managing director for uh, Chicago for IMEC. IMEC stands for the Illinois Manufacturing Extension Center. We are one of the 59 MEP centers that are around the country whose primary charter is to work with small to medium-sized manufacturing businesses, making them competitive in a global marketplace. We do that by doing hands-on work with them, 
helping them find ways to change the way they manage their business, to improve their cost competitiveness, flexibility, and the way they serve their customers. Competition is never, ever, ever going to be anything less than global from this point forward. And that probably changed several years ago. So we have to think, as manufacturing businesses, how do we compete in a global marketplace where someone else can pay less for factory labor, can pay an engineer less, can pay the general manager less? How do we compete in that marketplace and win our fair share of the business? To do that, we've got to look at reinventing ourselves in those five categories. Those five categories comprise what the MEP network has defined as the next generation manufacturing strategy, the keys to success. Historically, most consulting organizations, and including MEP, has focused on the continuous improvement element of this strategy. How do you improve your quality systems? How do you improve your ability to become certified and get a credential that makes you more attractive to a prospective customer? How do you eliminate the waste in your business, in your internal operations, both on the factory side of the wall and in your office processes? The rest of these things have gotten little or no attention. And accelerating technology, both in the products that you produce, using current technology to improve the effectiveness of that product, create a technology or a competitive advantage, reduce its cost, and in the processes that you use to make whatever product it is that you're selling. So the machine tools that uh, Harry used to sell in his former life when he was a contributor to society instead of a taker um, are the kinds of things that people need to be able to invest in. They won't invest unless they think they've got customers who are willing and ready to buy. Those customers won't buy unless they think you're competitive and or you bring some unique perspective to their product or service that makes you more attractive than the competition. Supplier development. Very few organizations, including most large manufacturing organizations, do everything themselves anymore. Back in the good old days, when I still had hair and most of it was brown, Ford made all of its own steel. They don't do that anymore. In fact, I saw an article yesterday that said a Russian steelmaker is buying that plant and has gotten a loan guarantee to invest several billion dollars in modernizing it to feed the Ford production lines in Michigan. Technology is going to be a key driver. There was a quote in a uh, news report this morning that Jeff Immelt, who's uh, the CEO of GE and is the chairman of the President's Council on uh, Job Creation, is, is focusing on R&D as the thing that will drive the best and most sustainable job creation. If you're not focused as a manufacturer on what technologies can help you improve your business, you're missing an opportunity to stay competitive. Supplier development, if you're going to be in business, you've got to depend on others to produce components for you and provide services that will make you more effective and competitive. They have to be as good as your customers expect you to be, because if they fail, you're failing as a result of their lack of competency working back into your supply chain, making sure that your suppliers have the ability to respond to your demands cost-effectively is a key element. Bruce talked about the workforce. Every small manufacturer I talk to today tells me they have open jobs they can't fill because they can't find people with two things, 
They either don't have the necessary technical skills or they don't have the necessary soft skills. They don't understand that they're expected to actually show up at work on time every day. They're expected to stay there all day and work. They're not expected to play on the computer. All of those things. And last but not least, sustainability. We are a planet that's consuming a tremendous amount of resources every day. If we don't find ways to start conserving those resources, using them more effectively, eventually we're going to have problems that are very expensive to solve. And so building your business model so that you've got the opportunity to stay green, minimize the waste of resources, usually pays for itself. It's a financially attractive proposition. But if you don't do your homework, you won't take advantage of it, and you'll bear the cost of wasting energy, wasting materials, and the other resources that you've got. Keys to execution, you have to leverage the things that you're strong at, your core competencies. You have to balance those five elements to take advantage of the ability to compete on a broad global basis. Willingness to move outside the comfort zone is usually the constraint for most business owners. If you are a family-owned business that's generating $50 million a year and you're the second or third generation owner, what you know about that business is what you've learned about it growing up. If you haven't broadened your horizons, if you haven't looked at how do I find how other people are doing some of the same things we do and doing it more effectively and applying it in my business, you're missing an opportunity. Somebody else will take advantage of you. Recognizing that speed and flexibility are probably going to become the two most important competitive tools you have in your quiver uh, or in your toolbox is, the, is absolutely essential. And speed and flexibility has to apply to all of the assets you employ in your business, which includes people and the physical assets. How do you create physical assets in your world, buildings <clears throat> and, and sites that have the ability to change without dramatic cost and disruption? as the market changes and requires you to do things in slightly different ways. Having the, the confidence to use resources outside your business to complement the skills that you need inside your business, drawing those external resources in and make them part of your planning process, and then making sure that your assets flex. What does the uh, MEP IMEC role? Well, we're kind of the bridge between <clears throat> what you think you should do or what you learn that you should do and how do you actually make it work every day in your business? We work on site with our clients, helping them apply best practices in a practical, pragmatic way that fits the relative size and resources of their business. We look at how do they uh, support the strategy, how do you develop a strategy in many cases, change management accelerator, no organization readily accepts change as their favorite thing to do when they get up in the morning. In fact, I, I've often used the analogy that I've been shaving for a long time now, and if I had to change the pattern in which I shaved every morning, I would probably be a cut-up mess. No one, no one changes their work habits easily either, and if someone's done the same thing uh, for 20, 30 years, Getting them to try a new method is one of the most significant challenges in helping move the business to its next level of performance. And then making sure that you're getting objective external advice. Who's the, who's the resource that is going to help that business owner understand 
how they're performing and how their practices compare with other people who have maybe moved three, two, three, four steps beyond where that business is. We achieve measurable impacts on client performance in sales growth, profitability, the investments they make in the assets they put into their business, and in jobs. We actually have, <clears throat> by contract with uh, our federal MEP contract, a requirement to have our clients surveyed six months after we complete a project. And in a series of 15 online questions, they're asked to quantify, did your sales grow? Did you improve your cost of operations? Did you have a positive impact on your investments? You either made an investment because you saw a new business opportunity and saw an opportunity to grow, or you were able to delay an investment because you found capacity in the physical assets that you have. And last but not least, did you create or retain jobs? Since IMEC was established uh, about 17 years ago, we've worked with over 2,200 companies. Those are all outside of the greater Chicago area. We're brand new to uh, the greater Chicago area, have been here for about four months now. We've done with that 2,200 clients about 4,000 projects. In that survey I mentioned, they paid uh, $34 million in project fees, roughly, and reported $1.7 billion in tangible economic value in their businesses. If you're not good at mental math, that's about a seven to one ratio. I would love to find, at my age, a place where I could get seven to one. Our client satisfaction surveys run around 98%, and as I mentioned, seven to one. We are a resource to work with all the businesses that manufacture products. There's no product or industry segment that we have not served, if not locally, through one of the other 59 MEP centers. All of the people that work in uh, IMEC and in the rest of the MEP centers average about 20 years of hands-on operating experience. Guys like me skew the average a little bit. I spend 40 years running businesses for GE Black & Decker, Phillips Consumer Electronics, uh, two private equity businesses, one of which I brought out of bankruptcy. We've done joint ventures in China. We've done uh, supply chain development. We've done all of the things that we've, we're helping our clients practice in some pragmatic way. And our goal is to help them succeed in a way that, that they can measurably see in the performance of their business within six to 12 months. What kind of questions does that generate, if not just for me, but for any of the three panelists? Uh, my question is for Mr. Mosier specifically, but anyone can answer. In terms of the reshoring issue, how many companies, or do you have any data with regards to what uh, the expectation is for companies to actually pursue this path? Uh, and secondly, once a company decides they are going to do it, how long does it take to implement and get something set up in this, this side of the sea? Now, I, I have no, no actual data for you. Uh, the, it, it, in terms of the time it would take depends a lot on whether the, the company has its own investment overseas, its own factory, in which case it has to shut it down, lay off people, build a factory or do all that. That's years to get that done. Or if it has merely outsourced the work to overseas, in which case it's the end of the contract and, and whatever time it takes you to find somebody else here, that's months probably to get that done. So I can answer that. Uh, what's it going to take? 
you know, I'd say they, they offshored often with no real savings. So hopefully, as they start to see real savings of five or ten percent, that that'll be enough to convince them to reshore. And and according to my data and the Boston Consulting Group, that should be, um, uh, you know, over, uh, maybe I'd say maybe ten or twenty percent of what's offshored now would make sense to bring back, and then that percentage might grow by. 10, 20, 10% a year as we, as the, if the Chinese wages and the currencies keep changing at the rate that they're going. And that should be enough to do it. My question is for Harry as well. As the uh, Chinese labor rates go up, I understand that many Chinese companies are starting to put in place some of the productivity improvements that Mike was uh, speaking about. Have you in, are you seeing that in your research and is that incorporated in your Total operating cost yeah. projections. In the uh, in that chart I showed you with the, the uh, cost going up, they're actually um, the way I calculate that. I take the uh, the assumed wage inflation in the example case 10 percent, and the assumed currency appreciation 5 percent. Add them together, get 15. Take 30 percent of that. So I think a very conservative estimate. And uh, and the reason I do that are, are two or threefold. One. Uh, only a certain percentage of the cost is labor. The percentage that's material or, or, or computers or machine tools is a fixed sort of world cost and won't change as their currency and, uh, and labor rates change. And second, it's clear that their productivity will rise faster than ours. And so I use that 30% factor to adjust for, the, for what you're pointing out. Yeah. Um, hi, sorry. Hello. Is this working? Okay. <laughs> Um, I have a question for Mike. Actually, uh, each of you spoke briefly about the uh, the workers and the unemployment rate and reshoring, et cetera. Mike, you talked briefly about change and how people need to embrace change. And I was wondering if you or any of you could provide some examples or one or two that really stand out on how manufacturers in Illinois or across the United States really did take advantage of that change to improve their manufacturing capabilities. Uh, a couple of good examples would be most manufacturers up until about the mid-80s tended to group similar types of machines in, together in areas. And so all of the horizontal turning machines would be in one place and the vertical turning machines would be in another place and the stamping machines would be in a third place. They've now looked at how you can bring those th three pieces or different types of equipment into one cell, arrange them so that you can quickly move from one to the other if that's what the process requires, eliminate the, ma the manufacture of large batches of material, which tends to be relatively inefficient, and get a much shorter response type time for start from starting to completing the product. Okay. Um, ready? Um, so question, you talked about how the economics are changing a bit Excuse me. relative to uh, China and the U.S. Um, one of the things that helps um, attract manufacturing is incentives, uh, government incentives and other local incentives to try to get people to, you know, come back. Traditionally, how has Illinois done, um, you know, what's your sort of assessment and where do you see it going forward relative to trying to get some of the uh, manufacturing jobs back? Any one of you? 
Uh, Illinois has had a couple of programs that we work with uh, on a regular basis. One is called ETIP, Employee Training Improvement Program, where a manufacturer who trains its uh, employees in new skills could get up to a 50% reimbursement for the cost of that training. Uh, that program has had less funding in recent years for obvious reasons based on the fiscal condition of the state. Uh, there are programs that encourage new business to come in based on tax incentives, which I'm sure most of you are aware of. But we have a fairly small, uh, relative to some other Midwestern states, rel relatively small number of tools to work with in terms of incentives. Uh, in the near term, I don't think it will change quickly or in any substantial amount now, the kind of until they solve the budget issue. Yeah, there was huge incentives in past years, and, and that's been declining for a number of years as far as competing with other states on the basis of uh, giveaways and, and that type of thing. I don't think the states have those kind of resources to play those games anyway, and I don't think they were really that productive to begin with. The other comment I'd make about incentives, particularly if it's for current operations, is those are short-term opportunities. I encourage clients to, to look at those as opportunities to jump a little farther ahead than you would normally on your, con your continuous improvement curve. Yes, good afternoon. Uh, Chris Mannheim, I'm a WorkKeys job profiler to say the least, and do a lot of work on both sides of the fence with education, economic development, but also with a lot of manufacturing. And just as an observation like you to, uh, to comment about, uh, most people don't realize what skills are required today by in your typical factories. They are not the same anymore. There's, this, this place is dull and dark compared to most of the plants that I've been into this year alone from R&D facilities to soap manufacturers and aerospace companies. Uh, the other thing, because of that, uh, most people don't realize that. Uh, so much of our workforce or potential workforce is just skirting manufacturing and going right into uh, uh, trying to get into college where there are not the jobs when they come out. Any comments and response? I, I, I'm going to pass that one to Bruce because that's your area of expertise. Many individuals aren't introduced to the concept of manufacturing as a career at any point in their lives. They don't even know it exists, and, and many find it by accident or they're referred by a family member or something of that type. So uh, if we do more on purpose to introduce young people to career opportunities, those with a spatial aptitude, not special, but spatial uh, shapes, or a strong math aptitude, or they just simply like to make things, and that's what they're, they're best at in their careers, we, we need to introduce middle school uh, and elementary school kids to uh, career opportunities because by the time you catch them later in high school, sometimes it's just simply too late because they haven't prepared themselves properly. But there is a big debate as to what should be taught in high schools, whether it should be academic, whether it should be career and technical education, or whether it should be academies with a combination of the two. We personally believe in our organization that the academy concept is best where, as I said earlier, a person has an opportunity to apply math and then they understand why they need to know algebra or trigonometry. Um, but we need to do a much better job of coaching our young people. And college isn't necessarily the best path. Continuing education is always the best path. 
but there's many ways to get educated. I, I'd, I'd add to that a couple of things. First, even though almost all the politicians say we want all of our kids to go to college, if, if, you, if they knew a little more, they'd know that about 40% of the people that have college degrees are in jobs that don't require a college degree. So the reality is we, we already have 50% more college graduates than we actually need. We just have the wrong kind. We don't have enough engineers, mathematicians, people who speak Chinese, you know, what have you. Now, the second thing, one reason so many kids go to college is because every year they see in the Chicago Tribune a report that comes out from the Department of Labor, Department of Education that says university degree pays off with a million dollars more lifetime income. You've all seen that. Sometimes you probably pass it to your kids and your, your cousins and so on. And, and, and the articles, the reports are actually reporting on a correlation between number of degrees and income, but they're not actually, only a portion of that is cause and effect because the, the child of an affluent uh, suburban family has the you know, language skills, the education, the intelligence, the contacts, the what have you to, to succeed coming out of high school, whether they became a tool and die maker, they'd probably wind up owning the shop, or whether they went on to college. In fact, they'll probably do better becoming a tool and die maker and owning the shop than they would getting an English degree and doing whatever turned out to, to be their choice. So, the, so the, the government is actually a significant portion of the problem by not explaining the real cause and effect relationship in those articles when they come out. My name is Paul Darby, uh, and I've been around the manufacturing process for a, a good part of my life. Uh, but my, I was interested in the companies that you worked with, uh, with GE, Thompson, and the third one, uh, Black & Decker. Black & Decker. Do you see the trend that I think Bill mentioned before you blew your whistle? Uh, <laughs> uh, but the trend of those manufacturers, I, I think they're, they're three leaders in the, their industry type that did take their manufacturing overseas to, because of, and I, I don't know if the unions have anything to do with our being non-competitive at the time they did that, but they took it away. Do you see those three companies bringing it back to the U.S. and seeing the urgency that we need to, to increase our our labor here in, on our own soil. Uh, in the story I meant, the story I mentioned earlier about GE and Jeff Immelt, one of his comments was the investment they'd made in R&D had allowed them to keep and increase the number of jobs at some of their GE factories, uh, which might have gone offshore. Now he's not saying that they won't invest uh, with that new technology offshore, but they're working to try and balance it. Uh, I think all larger organizations, uh, in part because of Harry's uh, crying in the dark uh, about understanding the real total cost, are taking a harder look and recognizing the trends are going to eventually put them in a place where they may not have a cost advantage by staying overseas. And the thing about long supply chains is they're terribly inflexible. They can't respond in less than several weeks when, in many cases, customers need responses in days or hours. Think of the ComEd challenge right now. If they need new distribution transformers, you don't want to wait six weeks for one to come from Shanghai. Not if it's your refrigerator that's not running or air conditioning. This concludes the program. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank Appreciate you. it.
please fill out your evaluation forms that are on your, your table. Thank you again for coming.